Turn with me to the book of Obadiah. This is the first sermon in a series on the 12 prophets, minor prophets, that we're starting this week for the next 12 weeks. I'll preach one sermon on each of the prophets, uh, exegeting and hopefully expounding the main message of that prophet to us. If you're having trouble finding Obadiah, that's because it's the smallest book in the Bible, and it's on page 1433 of the Blue Pew Bible. Those of you that don't have the Blue Pew Bible, you're on your own. I've also given you a bookmark that will help you next week as you place it in the book of Joel as you prepare to hear the word preached on Joel next week. I grew up in the 70s and early 80s predominantly, when we say growing up or you come of age, and uh, every Saturday uh, I would wake up and watch cartoons because I was young, and, but then at some point the voice of Jim McKay would be heard in our household, the wide world of sports. Do you remember that? That's before ESPN. That was our ESPN back then. And Jim McKay would open the program with these words, spanning the globe to bring you a constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory, and then there would be some victorious acts in sports. And then he would say the agony of defeat, and the the music would come down, and you would see this ski jumper, that was coming down this massive ramp, and just as he got to the bottom, he would lose it, right? And his, his, I think his right ski slipped out, and he fell down, and he went off the ramp, and his body was flailing and contorted, and he smashed into the, the, uh, the broadcaster's booth, and you thought, this guy is dead. And what we learn through Wikipedia is that he actually wasn't hurt that much. But he was, uh, it did show the agony of defeat. It was the picture in some of our minds anyway of what defeat looks like. Now imagine that scene of that ski jumper losing it, crashing into the booth, lying there lifeless, and they were to switch to the competitors' area, and the competitors, ski jumpers, were laughing and high-fiving and, and excited that this, their competitor was lying there lifeless. How would you feel? What kind of feelings would you have towards those people that were celebrating this person's absolute agony of defeat. Do you have that feeling? Now imagine that the skier who crashed was your own son. That will give you some idea of how God felt towards the Edomites today. Why he sent Obadiah to say such, in such strong words 
their condemnation. Look with me at verse 1 of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, and let's go against her for battle. See, I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and make your homes on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will not destroy, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Temen, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem and were like one of them. You were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah on the day of their destruction, nor boast with so much, boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in that day of disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads and cut down their fugitives, nor hand over the survivors on the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill. So all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be, it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble. And they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields from Ephraim to Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelites, exiles who are in Canaan, will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Seraphad will possess the towns of Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. 
and the kingdom will be the Lord's. As we start our series in the Minor Prophets, we begin with the most minor one, the book of Obadiah. It's important to note that the Minor Prophets are called minor simply because of their length. That's the only reason we call them the Minor Prophets. They're just shorter than the Major Prophets, the Isaiahs and, and Ezekiels and Jeremiahs. They might be minor in length, but certainly not in content. As the major theme of Obadiah teaches us, pride's deceptiveness, pride's deception. In our public reading of scripture in James today, we read, and I hope you absorbed, that God opposes the proud. That's a principle that is from Genesis to Revelation. And it's certainly one that comes to bear directly in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah was sent to preach to the nation of Edom, a nation that was just to the south and east of Israel. And in verse 3, Obadiah tells them, if you remember, that their pride of their heart has deceived them. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And I want to describe to you the three ways that, that God outlines this deceptive pride. The first is in what we see in, in this word is an unforgiving heart. Pride deceived the Edomites in their unforgiveness, their, their lack of forgiveness. This form of pride is, is not immediately apparent here in our text because you have to know a little background a little background of the relationship between Israel and Edom. Edom's resentment of God's people is long-term. It's probably the enemy of Israel that, that was around forever. It was like a mosquito that never gave up biting. It was always, always there. Many of Israel's enemies came and went. You have the Canaanites, who were succeeded by another enemy of Israel, the Philistines. The Philistines faded out, and in came another enemy, the Syrians, who were succeeded by the Greeks. And then, of course, you had the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians. But the Edomites were always there. They never faded away. They were always nipping at the heels of Israel, As John Phillips wrote in his commentary, they were implacable, unmerciful, and filled with hatred towards, Ed- towards Israel. Why such long-term hatred? Why the depth of hatred between Edom and Israel? Well, if you read carefully, you saw it in verses 9 and 10 of our text. Your warriors, O Temen, will be terrified. Everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. Edom and Israel's tensions and hatred have their root in Genesis 27. If you remember Genesis 27, that's the story of how Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Do you remember that? Where he dressed up as Esau and went in and, and, uh, you know, his father felt his arm and it was hairy and, and so he, Isaac 
blessed who he thought was his firstborn, Esau, but really it was his secondborn, Jacob, deceiving his father and stealing the birthright. And the birthright had two elements to it. The firstborn was supposed to get and supposed to consider most important, although he never really did, the blessing of the messianic line. Went from Isaac, I mean, went from Abraham to Isaac. It was supposed to go to Esau, the line of the Messiah. You want to know why Israel is called the chosen people? It's not because they were chosen for salvation, although that was true. It was because they were chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And that blessing was supposed to go through Esau, and Jacob stole that blessing. But of course, the blessing that he really got angry at was the blessing of the firstborn. The land, the wealth. That's why Esau was ticked off. And that's what Jacob stole. He stole his wealth. Esau's descendants, Edom, never forgave Jacob's descendants, Israel, for stealing what was rightfully theirs. So much so that when Jacob's descendants came out of Egypt in the Exodus, they were making their way to the promised land and they they came to Edom and they petitioned the king of Edom in Numbers 20, can we pass through your land so that we can get to the promised land quicker instead of going all the way around? And they said, forget about it. Go around. Don't lay a foot in our country. They had so much hatred and animosity that when they settled in the promised land, finally... Edom was always there, attacking, rebelling, picking away at Israel. So much so that when Israel was defeated, as we read here, and plundered, they just stood by and watched, didn't they? They looked down from their mountains and they were giving the high fives. He finally got his. If you look at verses 11, 12, and 13, that's what God's word says. You, God is saying to Edom, on that day that they were, they were decimated, their agony of defeat, you stood aloof while strangers carried off their wealth and foreigners entered their gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You, your brother. You should not look down on your brother in the day of their misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in their day of destruction, nor boast so much in their day of trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. These verses show us the second way that pride deceives It deceives through an unforgiving heart, but it also deceives through a gloating heart. Did you pick it up in verse 12? They're gloating over their their misfortune. You should not look down on your brother. Don't rejoice over your brother Judah in their day of destruction. Don't boast about it. Don't give high fives. Don't get excited about another, your brother being decimated and taken away in exile. Gloating is the second form of pride. And the Edomites were full of that type of pride. 
Again, we're not sure when this was written. We're not sure when Obadiah was sent to preach this to the Edomites. It could be in 586 when Judah was taken away to the Babylonian exile. It certainly fits the, the context of this. But, but so do several other periods of time going as early as 850 B.C. So we don't know if this was one of the first writing prophets or actually one of the last writing prophets. But whenever it was, Edom was gloating over Israel's defeat. They thought it was just deserts. They were looking down from their, their lofty heights and looking at this, that, that Israel burning, and they were saying the chickens have come home to roost. They stole our birthright. They stole from us. Now their treasure is being taken off. They thought it was some sort of poetic justice. This is another way that pride deceives. It deceives us into thinking, first of all, that, that by not giving forgiveness, we're in, we in some way have the upper hand. And it deceives us into thinking that Poetic justice in somebody else's life is in some way a good thing. Make it sound nice, don't we? We say just deserts, poetic justice. We, we try and, and make it sound good, make ourselves sound righteous in the same, by the same token. But it's pride by any other name. I don't know if you followed the story of uh, the company Ashley Madison last year. It was about last year at this time that an anonymous group of hackers hacked into that website. And Ashley Madison, if, if you don't know about that website, it's a website where married couples, a married person can go and sign up to have an extramarital affair. It's a website that facilitates two people that want to have an extramarital affair to come together. So what some hackers did last year about this time, a little little earlier in the summer, is they hacked in and they stole all the people's names and addresses and credit card information that had signed up. And they gave Ashley Madison an ultimatum. They said... If you don't shut down, we will download all these people who had signed up for this private extramarital affair into the Internet. We'll expose everybody. Well, the month came and went, and Ashley Madison did not comply. So they posted everything everybody's name who'd signed up for an extramarital affair. Now, for Christians who rightly recoil from adultery, who have a a right reaction to that, and at the existence of a site like Ashley Madison, we may be tempted to indulge in a little bit of poetic justice. They got their just desserts, didn't they? They wanted to go and do this thing in private, and now they're exposed. Ha! I'm glad. I'm happy that that happened. That's the tendency of the flesh, isn't it? 
they got theirs. I'm glad. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go on and see if I've, any of my friends' names are on there so that I can gloat over them. We have to be careful. God is condemning that in Edom, even though they're celebrating over the agony of defeat of God's own son. He's saying your sin has, the pride has deceived you so much that you don't even know you're sinning over this. We have to be careful not to fall into that same prideful deception. We as Christians, and by the way, Christians simply means little Christs. We as little Christs are to warn, weep, and then reach out. Those are our marching orders from Scripture. Not to gloat, not to point, not to say poetic justice. We're to warn. Yes, Numbers 32.23 is true. Your sin will find you out. And we're to warn people about that. We're to go and tell them, your sin will find you out. This is not a safe thing. This is not a secret thing. Sin is never secret. Eventually. We're to weep when the consequences of sin come home to roost in a person's life. We're to weep. I'm reminded of of the shortest verse in in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? And we spent some time on that when we preached through John. One of the major reasons he was weeping was he was weeping over the consequences of the fall. Lazarus died. It wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't his fault. He created the garden. He created the perfect atmosphere. He created a loving relationship, and we rejected that relationship. And yet he comes to the tomb, sees the consequences of mankind's sin, and weeps. That's what we're to do. Do you weep over sin? Not in your own life. It's kind of easy and self-serving, kind of. Do you weep over the sin in other people's life? That's what we're called to do. We're to be soft-hearted people just like our Savior. We're to warn and weep and to to reach out in love and forgiveness, not in judgment and gloating. To reach out to people. I was struck by one of our guest preachers, I think it was last year or the year before, he came and he preached, and uh, in his sermon, he talked about reaching out to people who don't know Christ. And I think I've mentioned this before. It's, it's going to stick with me the rest of my life, and I don't know why. He preached, and he said, you know, people who don't know Christ, they're actually in jail. And when you go into jail... When you go in to visit somebody in jail, you don't go in there to remind them of the consequences. You don't go in there to judge them. You go in there to share the peace, hope, the acceptance and forgiveness that they can have. Because, he said, they've already been judged. 
What motivates our reaching out to people that are struggling in their sin? We don't want to reach out into their life with judgment. We want to reach out with peace and forgiveness and reconciliation, love. They're already feeling the weight of that judgment if it's a brother or sister. You want to be alongside them. The gospel changes us into people that are like that, like Jesus, not standing afar with our arms crossed saying uh, poetic justice. They got theirs. But people who practice poetic forgiveness, if you will. That's what the gospel is. Finally, the deception of pride we see, thirdly, is a misplaced security. Again, in verses 3 and 4 of our text, we see this. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and make your home in the heights and who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Again, you need to know a little bit of the nation to understand this. The nation of Edom was a mountainous nation. They lived some 5,000 feet up in the mountains just south and east of Israel. And it was almost impregnable. As a matter of fact, if you saw Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, you saw one of their uh, buildings, Petra. That was Edomite territory. Thin canyons going up into mountainous regions. It was said by some that 12 men could hold back an army because the, the canyons were so narrow. So the Edomites had this pride that they would never be dislodged. That was where their pride was. Their, their pride was misplaced in their own selves and their location. They were proud of their invulnerability like a bodybuilder walking down a dark alley. Who can bring me to the ground? What a proud statement. They placed their security in themselves. They misplaced their security. And again, the application is easy, isn't it? That's what we do. We misplace our security. That's how pride deceives us. And perhaps this one, this one cuts the closest to the bone with us, with some of us here in this room, because we, it's so obvious and, and so applicable. We place our trust in, in things that, that we think will make us safe. Well, think about it. What in your life makes you feel safe if you have it? What in your life makes you feel secure that you can exhale and not take those short, nervous breaths? What is it? I mean, Jesus spoke the most about money because that's what is predominantly a problem with so many people. We, we misplace our trust. We say, I'm going to trust in what I have in the bank, in my checking account, in my savings account, in my 401k, in my retirement, in my pension. That's where my faith, that's what makes me breathe easy. That's what makes me uh, sleep at night. As a matter of fact, think about what we say, how we say it, when somebody loses their financial security. What do we say? 
he lost everything. Think about even how we say it. It's everything. How about a relationship? Is that where you place your security? Your husband, your wife? A boyfriend or girlfriend? If I only had that in high school, then I'll feel safe and secure. That'll give me meaning, purpose, and value. Or how about your job? Have one, all good. Don't have one, all bad. What about your health? Do you place your security? What makes you sleep easy is if you have good health. If I can only stay healthy, I'm okay. If that begins to go, is life really worth living? Think about what culture tells us. They, they talk about quality of life, don't they? Is life really worth living if I don't have my health? Spiritually speaking, what about your goodness? We talk a lot about that around here. Is that where you place your trust and security? I'm good. I'm nice. I smile a lot. I'm nice to people. I do good things. It must be okay. What is it really that you're putting your meaning, purpose, and value in? What is it that if you don't have it, makes you feel jittery and nervous and unsafe and insecure? What is it that if you don't have it, tempts you to call the pastor and set up a meeting? What is it really that puts the spring in your step? What is it that if you don't have it makes you feel if you have it makes you feel invulnerable like the Edomites? I'm okay. What is it that says makes you think in different terms of the same thing the Edomites said? Who can bring me to the ground? I got it. If it's anything but Jesus Christ, it's a misplaced security. It's a misplaced security. It's a false sense of security. I read an account one time of Steve Green who used to sing with the Gaithers. And he was telling about how he got to know some of the riggers on the crew that traveled with them. And the riggers are those guys that go up there in the rafters and they hang the lights and, and speakers. And they were sometimes 100 feet in the air over a concrete floor. And he befriended them and, and he talked to them. And Green said they weren't bothered so much about the height. But what they didn't like interestingly enough, were jobs where they were up in the rafters and you know those hung ceilings that are just a couple feet below the rafters, those false ceilings with the tiles? They said they didn't like working in rafters above those because eventually what would happen is, is as they're doing their work, they wouldn't realize that they were 100 feet off the ground on a concrete floor. They would begin to think they were only two feet off this ground. And they would start to get careless. 
They would start to take chances they normally wouldn't because they had a false sense of security. The truth is that if they slipped, they would break through those flimsy tiles and fall 100 feet to their death. Money, relationships, job, health, your goodness, those things are those deceptive tiles that make you have a false sense of security. If you're finding your meaning, purpose, and value in anything else, anything else than in Jesus' finished work on your behalf, you're 100 feet off the ground on four-inch rails thinking that you're two feet off the ground. And it's not true. Those things are flimsy tiles that give way instantly. Your pride has deceived you. And you need to hear the warning that Yahweh gives Edom. In verse 4, he says, Though you soar like an eagle, though you have a spring in your step, and make your nest among the stars, you sleep easy at night knowing that you have X. From there I will bring you down. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Verse 15 in our text tells us how, ju- how God mets out this judgment. As you have done, it will be done to you. That's the spiritual principle we see here. Pride brings about judgment. Yahweh is going to judge Edom. We see it in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He's going to take away their wealth. All their allies are going to turn against them. Their people are going to be slaughtered. Their nation is going to be stubble. You will be destroyed because your pride has deceived you. The scriptures mince no words here about pride, do they? They don't hold back. All forms of pride will be judged. An unforgiving heart, a gloating spirit, a misplaced security, that will all be judged because the day of the Lord is near. Judgment is coming. But the problem that we all have is that we don't think that pride is that bad. We simply don't see sin as that bad of a Pride is that bad of a sin, and that's the biggest deception of all. Think about it. There are some sins that are acceptable to confess corporately. You ever thought about that? There's some sins that, that when we as a congregation, and sometimes we do this, we do pray prayer of confession as a body, and I encourage people to actually speak and not just think. There's some sins that are okay to speak, isn't it? Lord, I confess that I don't share my faith. Yes, that is a sin. And yes, it does need to be confessed, repented of, and forgiven. I confess that I was angry towards my children. I confess that I don't read your word as much as I ought. I confess and and fill in the ones that you find you can say out loud. 
Those are sins that certainly need to be confessed and forgiven. Don't get me wrong. But it shows our heart a little bit. Among these, we say, Lord, I confess my pride. We, we can say that out loud. We prove that we do not consider pride as that bad. The late James Boyce makes this point by asking us to consider two statements. He says, consider these two statements. Which is worse? He's a good man, but proud. He's a good man, but a thief. Which one's more acceptable? Put almost any other sin in there and you begin to understand that he's a good man, but he cheats on his wife. He's an adulterer. He's a good man, but you can't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. He's a liar. He's a good man, but he never shares, he never gives. He's stingy, he's greedy. She's a good woman, but she smiles to your face and then goes and talks behind your back about you. He's a good man, but a pornographer. Say those and we wince. But say he's a good man, but proud. We don't really wince, do we? Yet scripture tells us that pride is the most heinous of all sins. Pride is what led Lucifer to be expunged from heaven because he said, I will make myself like the most high. Pride is what split the nation of Israel. Remember Rehoboam, you know, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. The great hubris split the nation of Israel. A haughty spirit is what caused the fall of mankind, isn't it? Adam's desire to want to be self-sufficient, to want to be independent, not dependent on God. And if left to our own devices, pride is what will keep you and me out of heaven. If left to our own devices, each one of us will look to ourselves for our own salvation. We'll look to ourselves. Something we have done something we have earned. I'm good enough. I did good things. I was a moral guy. We will look to ourselves. But God has a plan. God has a plan. And that plan you see in verse 17 through 21 in Obadiah. Verse 17 starts out, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And in verse 21, the bookend of that section, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Not, Obadiah gives us a vision of Israel being reconstituted. But not the nation Israel. The people Israel God's people, believers, God's kingdom, people living under the rule of God again. And it starts and ends with a deliverer being sent. 
See, one of the things you have to understand, and I'm, I'm saying this because we're going into the minor prophets, and you have to understand this theology. One of the things you have to understand is that God has a picture, has a vision that is much bigger and much better than a nation being reconstituted. His vision is so much bigger. It's much more comprehensive. It is the restoration of God's people that is being talked about in verses 17 through 21 in God's kingdom. And that kingdom began to be reconstituted when Jesus Christ started his ministry. If you remember, Mark, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. That one verse in Mark is packed. I can, I mean, this is extra biblical, but could it be that, that Jesus had this section of Obadiah in mind when he said, the time has come. God's kingdom is here. The rule of God on earth is beginning. You know what that rule is? That rule, as he said to Pontius Pilate, is not an earthly rule. It's a rule in each and every heart of each and every believer. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's where Christ rules or should rule. That's where the kingdom is. And that's what salvation is at its core. It's the, it's the displacing of your own rule and the replacing of God's rule in your life. That's the core of salvation. It's the death of pride. It's the death of self-sufficiency. It's the death of arrogance and egoism. It's the death of self-importance and conceit. It's the death of independence. It's the birth of dependence on Christ. It's the death of superiority and smugness. It's the death of self-righteousness. That's what the gospel explodes in people's minds and hearts. The death of pride in what you can do is salvation. Because to enter the kingdom of God, Christ's rule in your heart, you have to renounce your own rule. Do you realize that? That's what Paul says in Romans 10. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To believe he was raised from the dead. To enter the kingdom of God... For you to be part of the kingdom of God, it's saying, I've messed up my life. I need your perfect life, Jesus. To be part of the reconstituted Israel is to renounce the words, I can do it. And to start saying words like, I can't do it. I need Christ. To be a believer is to renounce the pride of being good. How deceptive that is. Start saying, I'm bad. Start saying when you sin, that is who I am. 
Not saying, oh, I swore, that's not who I am. No, saying, no, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, that's who I am. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Only then will the kingdom of God come into your heart and my heart. And that is the type of kingdom that Obadiah has in mind. Israel's kingdom never got reconstituted like this, guys. Never. But God sees a time that is coming when the whole earth will be God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, I pray that you will apply it to our lives, challenge us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.